Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. Emily Scott here, and today is Sunday, uh, May 3rd. 2020. Um, but once again, uh, the team for the show has put together, uh, you know, little stories over the last few days since we can't be in the studio to record live right now. Um, so yeah, we hope you've been enjoying what we've been able to produce the, you know, since all this started, this pandemic strangeness. Um, and we hope you enjoy today's episode too. Uh, we have a great show for you today. So, Let's just dive right in uh, with a couple local stories. Hello, hello. I'm Matthew Schneeman. Here's a lo- little local story. This is I met someone online at Bedsty Friends, uh, which is a Facebook group. His name is Aaron from Bedsty, and he had COVID nineteen, and later joined a program to that studies the effects the efficacy of using plasma from people that used to have COVID-19 to see if the antibodies within their blood can help other people it was a wonderful talk here's our conversation But then I sit here and I'm good with my own solitude. Like, I like my own company. You know, it's fine, but it's, I mean, I don't care how well grounded you are. You get a bit batty when you're just a person by yourself in the apartment. Hello. How are you doing? Uh, Hi hi again. Hi. So. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but, you know, but people are curious about, you know, I was sick and now I'm better. And so it's like I almost refer to myself now to some people as a COVID elder because all sorts of people that maybe are think they're maybe sick or starting to get sick or, you know, are asking me about that. And I'm kind of happy to help. And, you know, I, I think it's helpful for people to hear firsthand accounts. So yeah, certainly. a lot of that. Um, is yeah. it OK if yeah. I record this right now? You record away. I was one of the lucky ones uh, in the sense that um, because so many of us couldn't get tests. And so one of the worst feelings, if you think you have it, um, is knowing that you can't get tested. And so you think, maybe I have it. Maybe I don't. Probably I have it. Probably I don't. And so, so I personally probably first got it in the middle of March or the early third week of March. Um, and, uh, and there were a couple days where, you know, I was feeling very exhausted and getting weird headaches and weird muscle aches in places that didn't correlate with, you know, activity I was doing. And then, and then the lucky part is I had a complete loss of taste and smell. And <laughs> at that point it was just starting to be recognized. And the beauty of that symptom is that, uh, I mean, I, I guess theoretically it can otherwise happen in the universe, but it's pretty damn rare. It's pretty and special so, to uh, COVID-19, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it, it, yeah. Uh, and so for me, uh, and even so, it took me like two days to recognize I had it. I, I think I lost my sense of taste and smell yeah. around March 
20th, March 19th, well, something like that. Can we pause there for a yeah. second? Because that's just not an experience sure. people have. What's it like not being able to taste things? Uh, and smell. Uh, it's horrible. Uh, <laughs> I felt like, no, no, seriously, it was it was crazy horrible because, I mean, for me, I, I, I think some people live in their sense of taste and smell more than others. I really live there. Um, like, like I, I know for me personally, if I had the choice between being uh, deaf for a month or two or losing my taste of my, losing my taste and smell for a month or two, I would easily prefer to be deaf. Well, is it just um, because you're really into food or is it just how you, a sensory thing and how you experience the world? I think it's the uh, both, but but all certainly the latter. It's not just about food, like not being able to smell things uh, literally compounded with the feeling of isolation I was already having in, you know, in being in an apartment and being on lockdown. Uh, it was just one more sense. It was just one fewer, uh, uh, one, one, one more piece of stimulus that I was not having. And so, uh, no, that was really rough. I mean, wow. it was it was fun to play tricks. Like I would take out a giant piece of raw ginger root <laughs> and eat it slowly. Uh, and literally, it was no different than if I was eating celery. It was amazing. Or or like taking like really hot habanero hot sauce and pooling it on my tongue. Oh. Like not just t- tasting a little, but like putting like a tablespoon or two on my tongue and just letting it sit there. And I could feel it like burning from a physical tactile standpoint, but tasting it, no, nothing. Well, so what happened? I mean, eventually I was able to follow up and, uh, I mean, back when I had it, I was able to talk to a doctor who talked through and said, yeah, you probably have it. And I mean, I was already going on the assumption. And then, um, and then I just slowly went through that experience, which was just a crazy roller coaster. And then, you know, we all, or so many of us, so desperately want to be of, of service or be able to help. And, you know, I mean, if you're not a doctor, nurse or whatever, I mean, there's just very little... I mean, there are lots of things you can do. Mm. Now I'm sounding like a jerk. So uh, not, I'm sure there's any number of things. But uh, yeah, yeah. So now we're know, talking idea, about uh, yeah. y- you recovered and you want to be able to donate your plasma so that yeah. people can use the antibodies to help other people that have COVID-19. Exactly. Uh, yeah. The, so there, I know of two studies. One is uh, at Columbia Presbyterian. Another is through Mount Sinai. There are probably others, but in New York, those are the two I'm aware of. And so they initially had um, uh, surveys, like you you went online and you spent 15 minutes answering a bunch of questions. Uh, And then then Columbia, I think, I want to say like a week and a half later, called me back with some follow-up questions. And I feel like both of them had uh, you know, just release forms you had to sign. And then it was just waiting for them to call you. And now uh, today, I, I actually had my appointment. I went into uh, Columbia and uh, they, I finally got a, a virus test, ironically, for the first time today. So they <laughs> did the nasal swab. Um, it, it took getting over it in order to get the test, I guess. And then, uh, but then they also take your blood samples. And I'm told 
that uh, they, they look for the levels of two different kinds of antibodies. I forget what they're called. And if you have sufficient uh, number of both of them, and obviously if you're COVID negative at that point uh, with regard to the nasal swab, uh, then they bring you back and uh, you give plasma. And again, this isn't now already in general practice. This is part of a study they're doing. So I think uh, the nurse I spoke to described that the way the variable and controls work is that they have, there's three groups. One, one group was um, medical professionals working in uh, high exposure zones like ICU or whatnot. Uh, then the second group was people who maybe are uh, intubated or otherwise more critical with COVID. And then the third group uh, was, I think, a more randomized group who may or may not have COVID. They don't know. Mm. Uh, and then uh, so uh, they're eventually they, they give uh, uh, the antibody positive or sufficiently antibody positive uh, plasma transfusions to people in each of these two groups. And then, of course, they have a control group of, again, each of the three who don't get it. Um, and so I think she said uh, they're trying to get 450 uh, they want to get it to 450 in this study. I don't know if that was 450 per each of the six possible groups or total. I, I, I don't know what the math was. Mm. But um, uh, please be patient. Uh, when I finally spoke to the woman uh, with Columbia in particular, like there's one woman who's calling back thousands of people, and it takes time to set these up. And she was describing that some people, I mean, I understand people being frustrated, but please, please, please be patient with them because I think they're relatively understaffed in trying to get these studies done. So uh, if you if you get signed up, just hang on. They, they really will call you. It'll just maybe take some time. You had, you said you had a very, I'm not sure if it's a, the best joke or the worst joke I've ever heard. Uh, in the initial Facebook posts that I that I saw this on, do, do you yeah. recall the the pun that you made? No, I make terrible puns all the time. Okay. I don't even remember. I'll summarize Tell it. me what I said. Uh, yeah, you spoke earlier about how difficult oh, it was. I know. What, oh, oh, is this uh, painting the town red? Yeah, yeah. Is, go for it. It's it's this sounds horrible, but it felt like. But when I got the call, and I'd been trying for three weeks to uh, to get into these studies and it was really like trying to win tickets off the radio or something and uh or you know calling into unemployment it's maybe not that hard but um <laughs> when, when when i finally got uh when i finally got the calls it felt like a little bit of the old new york like i got like reservation at a new hot restaurant or something like it's very <laughs> exciting and so yeah now i said yeah i'm gonna you know between the two studies i'm gonna go paint the town red but i'm bumped you know, blood. <laughs> That's you know, terrible joke. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, one man's terrible is another man's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, we're we're just gonna have this be a short segment, but I'm I'm happy sure. that you recovered wonderfully. I'm happy that you were able to uh, withstand the bureaucratic and the phone take it, it took to be able to help others and i'm glad that you took my call and gave us your experience yeah of course i mean i i hope you can use i, I sound like a crazy person and when you're in solitude i think like talking has become such a strange practice so i hope you can use some of this tape you know god save oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. it was wonderful wonderful Th thanks for uh speaking with us aaron 
Good luck. I'm sorry I slaughtered my joke for you. I slaughtered my own joke because I don't even remember what I say. It, it was. Right. You did a wonderful <laughs> job. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah. All right. Well, um, uh, uh, I hope uh, you're uh, safe and well and all the platitudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for speaking. Yeah. Emily Scott here with a local story. So this comes from an April 29th story in, uh, or is it on the city.nyc, the media outlet, and it's titled Amazon Warehouse Packers Say They're Jammed Onto Staten Island Buses uh, by Clifford Michelle. So as if you needed another reason to resent the multinational commercial nightmare that is Amazon, uh, I got one for you. So uh, the city reports that Amazon employees of Amazon's massive Staten Island warehouse, uh, a.k.a. Fulfillment Center, uh, which goes by the name JFK 8, uh, have no choice but to pack tightly onto MTA buses to make their make it to their shifts, despite the need for social distancing during the coronavirus pandemic. And they're, quote, calling on the online retail giant to provide social distance friendly shuttles. Workers also want the MTA to bring back one of the two lines that until recently, uh, end quote, ran between the Staten Island Ferry Terminal and the warehouse. While the number of employees at JFK 8 has grown to 5,000 to meet increased demand in an age when people feel safer ordering something to their door than going out to buy it in person at a store, or maybe those stores aren't allowed to be open in the first place anyway, uh, the MTA bus system has not been able to adjust appropriately. While on March 25th, the MTA added 20 buses to the local route on weekdays and 16 on weekends, on April 9th, the MTA suspended the express bus um, indefinitely. And writers say that, quote, with the front of buses closed off to help keep passengers six feet away from drivers, it's difficult to maintain social distancing. Uh, Employee Philip Ruiz said, uh, it's crowded. We're like sardines in a can. And if a CUNY school like College of Staten Island can provide shuttle bus for their students, then I'm sure a multi-billion dollar uh, corporation can easily provide us with a shuttle bus. An MTA spokesperson said uh, the MTA is constantly monitoring its service and making adjustments in order to deliver the best possible service to customers. We added 132 S40 buses per week when Amazon had a surge in hiring last month, and we continue to monitor the service in light of the dynamic and unprecedented COVID-19 pandemic to evaluate whether additional changes are necessary. An Amazon spokesperson uh, said that they have begun to stagger shift times to help with social distancing and have coordinated a Waze carpool rideshare option. Uh, Although me, personally, I'm not sure how that last one keeps you six feet away from other people, but... Anyway, um, but they would not comment on whether there might be a shuttle bus in the future. And for a little background to spice the story up before you, uh, JFK 8 sounds like a shitty place to work in general. It opened in late 2018, and in its first few months, it recorded an injury or illness rate of 15.2%, higher than the coal mining industry, according to OSHA. And in March of this year, Amazon fired employee Chris Smalls, who had organized a quote, a protest calling for more personal protective equipment and for the warehouse to be shut down overnight for a thorough cleaning. 
And uh, Amazon uh, made the claim that he'd been fired for violating their quarantine policy. Uh, but if it sounds like a bit like retaliation, NY State Attorney General Letitia James uh, agrees and has indicated that she's investigating a potential violation of New York whistleblower laws. Uh, so, yeah, and Amazon sucks. What else is new? Uh, try and support small business and order directly from companies instead of Amazon when you can and stand with employees when they try and fight for better working conditions. We're going to take a quick musical break right now before we come back with some more stories. This is Jackie Wilson's Your Love Keeps Lifting Me Higher and Higher, uh, which I chose because there's this great scene in Ghostbusters 2 um, where they bring the Statue of Liberty to life to save New York City with the uplifting power of the song. Uh, And actually, it was an extremely 80s cover of the song. Uh, But anyway, I figured New York City can use all the help it can get right now. Um, So enjoy this throwback banger. Welcome back. You are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Let's jump right back into some stories. Hello, this is Jasmine Smith on May Day, May 1st, 2020, on a Friday. Um, I'm recording a national story and also a local story for Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. 
So what you're hearing right now is true as of Friday, May 1st, but the show is going to be airing on Sunday, May the 3rd at 1 p.m. So some things may have changed between then and now. So first off, for national news, we're all familiar with the accusations brought up against Justice Brett Kavanaugh by Dr. Christine Blasey Ford last year, as well as the current president being caught on tape talking about grabbing women's genitals, among other things. And there's been a lot of media coverage of those incidents, and recent movements like Me Too and Time's Up have been extensively covered in the news over the past few years. It has felt like for me, and I know for a lot of my people in my circle, that there's been a wide ranging, diverse set of voices finally being heard and amplified about the pervasiveness of sexual misconduct and the insidiousness of rape culture. There's been a lot of articles, TV specials, documentaries, and podcast episodes dedicated to public figures like R. Kelly, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, and the current president. But more recently, there's been a notable change in tone from some of the most prominent figures in Me Too and Time's Up regarding Tara Reid. For those of you who don't know, Tara Reid is a former aide to Joe Biden, the former vice president and the presumptive Democratic nominee for the presidency. She claims that Biden assaulted her in 1993. She currently lives in California and has noticed that even though Biden has been in public view for some time now, no one seemed to be publicly asking him questions about her story. It took over a month since Reid came forward with her allegations for Biden to be asked in an interview about them. And today, this morning on an episode of Morning Joe, Joe Biden claimed that the allegations were false, claiming that it never happened. So it took a while for him to address these allegations himself, like some of his surrogates had been saying that they didn't believe that it was true. But this is one of the first instances of him um, today coming forward and saying with his own words that he didn't do it. Um, I know for myself and for many others, it's been really shocking to see how figures like actress Alyssa Milano, rape survivor and advocate and ad activist Tarana Burke and politician Stacey Abrams have seemingly decided to put aside believing women. And that's like, quote unquote, in this particular case, they and many others in the media are usually very vocal about how often victims of sexual violence are ignored, belittled and scrutinized to protect men. But in this particular case, those who have been trying to bring attention to Tara Reid's story have been facing a surprising amount of backlash from Biden supporters, many of whom are the same people that would normally advocate for believing survivors before anything else. Just this past week, journalist Chris Hayes said on his show, All In, that we have to take the allegations against Joe Biden seriously. He opened a news segment with saying to his credit that we all know, and I'm paraphrasing here, we all know what it's like to hear about an allegation against someone that we may know, someone that we like, someone we believe in, that we desperately want to think is not true. But if we've learned anything from Time's Up and Me Too, like we have to fight that impulse and take them seriously regardless. 
he went on to report on Tara Reid's allegation, as well as on the corroborating reports that have come out from a former co-worker and former neighbor of Reed's. There wasn't anything out of the ordinary or inflammatory about the news segment itself or controversial, but just for suggesting that the allegations against Joe Biden had to be taken seriously, a group of Biden supporters called for Hayes to lose his job at MSNBC. So for me, like just reading all of these headlines and seeing, you know, on Twitter and in other social media spaces, the way some have done such a complete 180 from believing survivors to basically, you know, defending someone who's been credibly accused multiple times of sexual misconduct and in this case assault. I really would like to know, like, how did we get here? And it honestly seems to me that those who want to overlook Reed's story, as well as the many other credible accusations that Biden has behaved inappropriately with women and girls in the past, I think the people that are fighting so hard to sort of brush this under the rug to minimize it, I think that they're letting their fear override their principles. So for many people, the fear of having Trump in office for another four years is so strong that they're willing to dismiss any and everything that they perceive to be a threat to their right to claim the moral high ground compared to Trump supporters. And, you know, no matter how strongly someone might feel about that, it's not a winning strategy. It's not a winning strategy for the Biden campaign. And more importantly, it's not a win for survivors of sexual assault. In my opinion, it only drives home the message that many of us get from an early age that if the person who assaulted you or harassed you is powerful, popular, or is considered important in any way, you're going to be thrown under the bus because it's more convenient to dismiss you than it is to hold the perpetrator accountable. And, you know, I personally, and I know I'm not alone in this, like I would hate to see all of the goodwill that's been built up towards not just women, but anyone who's been a victim of sexual assault coming forward. It would be a massive step back if all of the people that now feel emboldened to come out and speak their truth get pushed back into not really telling when these things are happening to them because they're afraid of not being believed or not being taken seriously. And when these types of things happen on a national scale in front of the whole world, you have to think about what the wider implications are for future victims or victims in the past that are now like, well, look at how they treated so-and-so. Like, of course, they're not going to believe me. Like, we've had enough of that. And it's really gross to think of us going back even further than we already are. So right now, like, we're still a good six months away from Election Day. And I know I think that things are looking pretty bleak for the Democratic Party. On one hand, it started out with the most diverse group of presidential candidates, and then everything ended up being whittled down to a former vice president that, frankly, has no discernible vision and also has a lot in his past that he has yet to fully answer for. 
And um, my hope is that by pointing out the hypocrisy of sweeping Reed's story under the rug, that it'll motivate those in the Biden campaign to change course and call for him to be held accountable the same way that they would be doing if it were a figure in the opposing political party being accused of something similar. And I know it's extremely unlikely. It's probably 99% sure that this won't happen. But it's also not too late for another candidate to take over as the Democratic nominee. Um, the lack of imagination and the decision to move from a place of fear rather than from a place of integrity is what has brought us to this point. And continuing down that road is not going to end well for any of us. Um, if you would like to know more about Tara Reed and hear about her experience in her own words, you can please read Rosie Gray and Ruby Kramer's BuzzFeed article about her entitled Tara Reed Knows She Has a Difficult Allegation and She's Had a Difficult Time Getting a Hearing. So that's it for national news. Uh, you're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'll be back later with local news. Welcome to Objection to the Rule, or still on. Thank you, Emily, for putting this together. I'm Matthew Schneeman here. I'm a contributor. Here's a piece taken from nativenewsonline.net and the DOI government website. I believe that's Department of Interior. Indian Affairs extends deadline for the National Tribal Broadband Grant Program. Okay, this may be... A boring recap, or at least sounds like one, but I think there's something important here. So there's a grant, Native News Online describes it as, where, quote, all federally recognized tribes are eligible to apply for the grant. The grants will, sub will fund feasibility studies for the deployment or expansion of high-speed internet broadband, end quote. Why is this important? They continue, quote, the purpose of NTBGs is to improve the quality of life, spur economic development and commercial activity, create opportunities for self-employment, enhance educational resources and remote learning opportunities, and meet emergency and law enforcement needs by increasing broadband services to American Indian communities that lack adequate connectivity, end quote. When they said uh, remote learning opportunities and meet emergency i thought they said meet like m-e-a-t because <laughs> i currently slaughter houses are hot spots for the coronavirus that's meet emergency this is different though okay so where am where am i okay quote currently broadband access in other rural parts of the country outpaces development on rural tribal lands end quote Yikes, that means Native communities have slower than the already slow internet that people outside of the cities currently experience. Quote, a large portion of tribal areas are located on rough terrain in rural locations. Like most rural locations, populations are sparser than in urban areas. These factors drive up the costs for businesses to serve tribal areas, creating a barrier to broadband deployment on tribal lands. Rural broadband deploy is achievable. 73.3% of rural non-tribal locations have at least one broadband provider. However, only 46.6% 6 
of rural tribal locations have coverage, end quote. So why is this so? Do Native communities face unique problems besides the rough terrain that they specified? Well, certainly. Quote, broadband access in many parts of Indian country is complicated by the need for federal appraisals, right-of-way permits, and obtaining favorable environmental impact assessments. The National Tribal Broadband Summit is part of DOI's ongoing efforts to close the connectivity gap and build on the work of the American Broadband Initiative, end quote. I know a lot of us complain about Facebook and social media, blah, 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 the internet's awful, but the internet is important. One thing referenced here was that it's difficult for businesses to install broadband because it's not cost-effective. They said, quote, like most rural locations, populations are sparser than in urban areas. These factors drive up the cost for businesses to serve tribal areas, end quote. Then should the internet be treated as a public good, a right for all citizens? Earlier this month, the post office asked for money a federal bailout of sorts. The post office is important because it helps educate the public. It keeps us connected. What is the internet other than that? I mean, it's called (laughs) e-mail. Is the internet just an extension of the post office? Sure. Well, I mean, in spirit. There's a constitutional imperative to have an educated electorate. Last week, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit ruled that Detroit students have a constitutional right to literacy. Detroit public schools were suffering so much that they violated the Constitution. And I think this stuff is important. something I believe in. There's a thing at the post office called Media Mail. It used to be very popular. It's where you can uh, mail books for cheaper because the government knew that books were important for education, but we don't really use books the way we do. We use the internet. (laughs) But, you know, whenever... Yeah, okay. Back to the story. As sovereign nations coexist within the federal government, tribes are often in unique positions, but the sovereignty of Native people does not exclude them from their constitutional rights as U.S. citizens. Should we nationalize the internet? In many ways, we already are. Billions of dollars in subsidies. The Rural Health Care Program provides money to hospitals to get broadband internet. The Farm Bill Broadband Loan Program has a big list of grants, and the list goes on and on. Do we need more? Of course. Only 46.6% of rural tribes have broadband. The story struck a chord with me because... There is this incredibly hurtful conception of Native people as being part of the past. In 1904, there was a book published called The Vanishing Race by Edward something something. And The Vanishing Race is is a phrase that extends to today. It's this idea that Native people are inevitably incompatible with modernity. And what's sad about that phrase is it was used by people that thought that they uh, were sympathetic to the Native and Indigenous people of America. But, just because you have good intentions doesn't mean you're not racist. And that phrase is bullshit and extends today. And if we don't make sure that everyone has internet, then we're just going to be indirectly supporting that idea that these people don't need the internet. The vanishing race. It's bullshit, never was true, so let's get everyone access to the internet because that's important. 
We're going to take another musical break. This is Your Arms Around Me by Jens Lechman, and it's dedicated to anyone who is physically separated from their loved ones these days.
Welcome back. You are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And we have some words from Radio Free Brooklyn for you right now. Um, So friends, COVID-19 is disrupting everyone's lives right now. And Radio Free Brooklyn is no exception. We want you to know that we have made every effort to ensure the health and well-being of our hosts, staff, and the community at large. We closed both our studios and canceled live events, but our hosts are still doing their best to continue bringing new original programming by broadcasting live and pre-recording from their home studios, or by selecting the best rebroadcasts of their past shows. With most of our revenue streams evaporated, we need your help. We realize you may be hurting too, but if you can afford a small donation, it would go a long way toward helping us stay on the air. There are three ways you can help. First, you can give a one-time or monthly donation by going to radiofreebrooklyn.org donate. There you'll find some great t-shirts, mugs, and other swag that we'd like to send you to say thanks. You can also use your phone to text RFBGIVE5, that's the number 5, to 44321. It only takes a moment, and you'll be able to use your digital wallet for your donation. Finally, if you shop on Amazon, you can go to Amazon.com smile and register Radio Free Brooklyn as the nonprofit you wish to support. When you do, a percentage of your sales will go to RFB, and it will cost you nothing. No donation is too big or too small. Whether you can afford uh, whatever you can afford – and whether you can afford it will make a huge difference. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts and wish all our listeners health and happiness as we weather this storm together. Thank you. And now for some more news stories. Hello, this is Jasmine Smith on Objection to the Rule. I'm bringing you a piece of local news. This was reported in the New York Times. The name of the story is Dozens of Decomposing Bodies Found in Trucks at Brooklyn Funeral Home. And the authors are Alan Feuer, Ashley Southall and Michael Gold. So Brooklyn residents on Utica Avenue called the police recently because of a strong stench coming from the trucks outside of a funeral home nearby. The police discovered that there were dozens of decomposing bodies being stored in a rented tractor trailer and a U-Haul truck. The trucks had been borrowed by the funeral home because the funeral director had run out of space in his chapel. So when I initially um, heard this story, I thought that it was, you know, one or two people. But hearing that it was literally dozens and that one of the trucks was the size of a tractor trailer, really, it was shocking to me. Um, So far, 17,000 people that we know of in New York City have died from COVID-19. And we know that there's also many, many people that have not been tested. So that's 17,000, as huge and scary as a number as it is, it's not fully accurate. And the fact that we're in the midst of a pandemic doesn't mean that deaths from other causes have stopped. So we also know that there's been numerous reports of individuals dying in their homes, either because they're too afraid to go to a hospital or they go to a hospital, but they're sent back because there's not enough space. And there's also individuals that are just passing away too quickly to make it to a hospital. Um, The Andrew D. Cleckley Funeral Home is in the Flatlands section of Brooklyn. Mr. Cleckley, who's the owner, said in an interview that his business has simply been overwhelmed and he was trying to use the trucks as a backup. He had tried to purchase a refrigerated trailer like other funeral homes have been doing, but he was unable to secure one because of supply shortages with so many more people passing away than normally would be in this amount of time. 
According to the New York Post, the Andrew D. Cleckley funeral home was stripped of its license on Friday, May 1st, so earlier today. Cleckley said in an interview this week that we're trying to help all our clients, but we're jammed up. And, you know, this was a very obviously disturbing and heartbreaking story. And I know the loved ones of the deceased are understandably traumatized and upset. But um, given that this is the largest mass casualty event that New York City has seen in over 100 years, I'm hoping that there's going to be some grace extended to the regular people who are just doing the best that they can with extremely limited resources and under a lot of unimaginable stress. So, you know, my condolences go out to all of the people whose loved ones experienced this after they passed away and also to all of the essential workers that are putting their lives on the line as well as the people who work normally their job is to take care of and support people who have lost someone but right now like they're dealing with way more than anyone would be reasonably expected to handle well so let's hope that they're able to get more of the support that they need to continue to do their jobs so that they can continue to serve community members that are losing their loved ones in this difficult time. So that's it for the local news. This was Jasmine Smith on Radio Free Brooklyn. You're listening to Objection to the Rule. Bye. Emily Scott back here with a world news story. Uh, This comes from a New York Times Indonesia uh, dispatch, an April 27th article titled Jakarta's Trash Mountain, uh, When People Are Desperate for Jobs, They Come Here, by Adam Dean and Richard C. Paddock. And the photos by Adam Dean are remarkable, uh, so I recommend you check them out. Uh, Okay, so while the early shock of hearing about the myriad ways that life has changed around the world due to COVID-19... Uh, While that shock has worn off a bit, I continue to learn about new and devastating ripples across the globe, like at the trash mountains of Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia, a place that has a certain fascinating horror to it, even without the cloud of the pandemic. And I mean the trash mountains, not Indonesia, just to clarify. (laughs) The Times article examines life at Bentar Gibang, uh, apologies if I pronounced that wrong, um, one of the biggest landfills in the world and over 30 years old and the villages of trash pickers that have grown in its shadow. It's, quote, more than 200 football fields in size, accepting as much as 7,000 tons of waste a day from Jakarta, end quote. It stands as a testament to the damage wrought by overconsumption in today's world and to the unnatural idea of refuse being separate from regeneration. The people who work the colossal garbage heap, sometimes with their bare hands, are looking for pieces of wood, plastic, and anything that they can sell to recycling companies. Dozens of villages exist nearby, inhabited by the workers and their families. Locals estimate the population to be around 20,000. The groundwater is contaminated and the stench is terrible. With most recycling companies closed due to the pandemic, there are fewer trash pickers still working and fears about how they will feed themselves and their families. But the trash keeps rolling in, growing ever higher without the usual hundreds of people who work to remove the reusable items. There's a quote here from the article, no cases of the virus have been reported in the landfills villages, but no one has been tested there either. The trash pickers don't qualify for government coronavirus aid because they are not registered as residents. 
There is a widespread belief in Indonesia that living in unsanitary conditions helps people build immunity to diseases like the coronavirus, an unscientific view that will be put dangerously to the test in the landfill's shantytowns, end quote. Uh, and if you're interested in help, uh, listeners, if you're interested in helping this community of trash pickers, you can visit www.bgbj.org. That's B as in boy, G as in girl, B as in boy, J as in jelly, um, which is the webpage for Seeds of Bantar Gabang, a nonprofit co-founded by Ressa Bonard, uh, a person who grew up near the landfill. Thank you. I'll continue with... A world story. This one was taken from Al Jazeera. It's from the opinion section about Latin America. Nicola Morfini wrote an opinion piece for Al Jazeera called Coronavirus and Narcotics. Can drug cartels survive COVID-19? He opens with, quote, The year 2020 has been terrible for people across the world, but it has been particularly bad for Latin America. However, it is not just illegal businesses that are feeling the heat. The pandemic has hit the illegal drug trade too. But rather than allowing their industry to collapse, the drug cartels will likely do what they do best. Adapt. End quote. First, let's outline how drug cartels have been hurt. Nicola says that one problem is, quote, the reduction of air and naval traffic, which makes it easier for the authorities to track illegal cargo. As state-imposed lockdowns force people to stay at home, the cartels will soon find themselves unable to stage kidnappings for ransom. Meanwhile, the fact that most businesses are shut will mean they will not be able to make much money from extortion. Furthermore, the declining oil and gas prices and the tanking economy will make petrol smuggling another important income source for the cartels significantly less profitable, end quote. While larger cartels may be able to weather the storm, smaller ones may turn to cattle theft. What other forms of income can cartels extract in a time like this? How will cartels adapt, as Nicola says they will? Quote, as the, they occasionally did in the past, they can orchestrate mob assaults on large private companies in order to force these companies to seek their protection and pay for it. There are also concerns that the cartels will shift their focus to the medical market and start producing and smuggling medicines that are used in the treatment of COVID-19 in an effort to turn crisis into opportunity, end quote. The ingredients used to make meth can... Sorry, the ingredients used to make meth often come from China. Quote, meanwhile, the increasing difficulty in obtaining chemicals from China may encourage Latin American cartels to create new synthetic drugs using replacement materials, which could result in new social and health risks for populations and the emergence of new smuggling routes and providers, end quote. So as meth prices rise, cartels may be forced to deal in crack cocaine, which mostly comes from Latin America, where the borders are still quite porous. So large drug cartels may wait things out or engage in COVID-19 supply smuggling. They may change which drugs they peddle. They may fight amongst themselves as the balance of powers teeter and totter. 
hoping violence will not increase. I was nervous to summarize this piece because it promotes a classic stereotype about Latin America, but it is a reality that drug cartels and corruption do hurt a lot of people. Of course, more, of course most people are aware that these things don't exist in a vacuum. Actually, I, I, I would hope that most people are aware of that, but I don't think most Americans are aware of how America's legacy has affected the existence of these cartels. We can connect America's shameful past of supporting coups, attacking democratically elected governments, as we did in Guatemala or Honduras. And of course, our silly war on drugs has criminalized addiction and created an illicit market that makes up $5 billion of the cartel's business. So, yes, we are tied to this violence. Perhaps America will help with the solution. Perhaps an equitable trade policy with Mexico that helps their economy more. Perhaps migration policies that are sensible. Drug use legalization. I don't know. This article was a little bit vague, and I'm a bit vaguer. (laughs) But hopefully, the things that Nicola... Orfini hypothesizes won't happen. But who knows? Scott, back with some good news. Uh, We've all been desperate for some. This story comes from an April 28th article in E360, uh, published by the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and titled, Indigenous Group in Brazil Wins Decades-Long Battle Over Illegal Logging. The article explains, quote, the Ashaninka indigenous community in Brazil has won a two-decade federal court dispute against illegal logging interests receiving $3 million in compensation and an official apology from companies for cutting down thousands of mahogany, cedar, and other tree species in the Campa do Rio Ammonia Indigenous Reserve. In this particular case, the wood was used in the European furniture industry. The money will go, quote, directly toward protecting the Ashaninka community and the Amazon forest, end quote, and uh, many hope that the case will be a precedent for other lawsuits in the country involving indigenous groups and the environment. We rarely see good news about the rainforest these days, so I was really happy to stumble upon this one. I hope it made you a little bit happier, too. All right, that's been our show for today. Thank you to our team who worked so hard every week to help put this thing together, and to Radio Free Brooklyn for being an amazing station to produce a radio show with. And thank you to you, our listeners. You can find older episodes online at radiofreebrooklyn.org slash objection to the rule, and on iTunes, too. iTunes podcasts, to be specific. Uh, We'll be back next Sunday. Stick around for some more independent Brooklyn media. 
We're going to go out with one of my favorite feel-good songs of all time, Dela by Johnny Clegg and Savuka. And yes, it's from the George of the Jungle movie, the soundtrack to that movie. Um, have a great week, everyone. Thank you.